Well, good morning, church. I'm the guy who goes on and on and on. My name is Andy Maddock, and I'm blessed to be the lead pastor here and to get to share a sense of the Word of God in our midst this morning. It's okay to laugh. I approve that joke. Uh, pastor Camille will tell you that I often have a sermon before the sermon, and I'm going to be unabashed about that this morning and uh, just share some thoughts with you before we get into the sermon proper. Um, and that's, I'm so grateful to Cassandra and your family for lighting our candle of peace. It, 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 it's, a, it's a smaller candle. It sits a little lower. Uh, from where you're sitting, you may, you may not even be able to tell that that third candle is actually burning. Um, and for me, that's a powerful reflection on today for a couple of reasons. One, I'm up early enough that as I drive through the neighborhood to go and fetch Pastor Camille some Starbucks, uh, I get to drive around before everybody's plugged in in their inflatables. Uh, and so it's the most depressing Christmas image you'd ever see when everybody's inflatables are just sitting dead in their driveways and front yards. But more than that, it's a reminder to me to the state of the world and where we find ourselves. There was actually a push this morning. We're actually back on cycle with uh, our, our friends and neighbors with our Advent season. Uh, those who started their Advent on the typical week are also doing a Sunday of peace today. Uh, and the uh, World Methodist Church, uh, through their British liaisons and their work uh, with the folks uh, of Palestinian Christians, uh, sent out a prayer request and said, would you consider not lighting the candle of peace today uh, in solidarity with the suffering uh, of folks in the Middle East, particularly Christians in Palestine and in Israel? And uh, I thought about it and then decided we would light the candle all the same. But I'm okay with it being a little lower, um, but it's important to light it, and I'll tell you why. Uh, one, we lit the candle last year when there was violence in the Ukraine. We lit it the years before in uh, issues of Sudan and Darfur and all these places in the world where violence continues to manifest itself even in this time of year. We light the candle of peace today not because we have gotten there. These candles are never lit, in, or are never lit out of a response to the perfect human interaction. Right? We don't light a candle of hope because we've done it. Good job, hope accomplished. We don't light the candle of joy because we are joyful certainly don't light a candle of peace because we've gotten all the way there. These are aspirational lights. They tell us that this is the world as we hope and long for it to be, that we are preparing for as we build the kingdom of God together. It's why the Christ candle isn't lit until Christmas Eve. And when we light that candle, it is not because we have somehow accomplished welcoming Christ in a perfect way, or we have made ourselves perfectly ready for Christmas or Christmas Eve and that candle to be lit. We light the Christ candle on Christmas Eve because we anticipate the need for Christ in the midst of our imperfection. So it was important to me, it was important to our staff, uh, that while the request did come, uh, we partner with uh, the cry for peace in other ways. This is a light that burns bright for me in the hope for peace in this holiday season. The second little sermon before the sermon piece this morning, I want to live into a tension between two ideas. One is fear and one is great joy. We're going to talk about the shepherds in a moment's time. Uh, if you're using our Advent devotional guides, read today's. Pastor Steve Hasper wrote an amazing reflection on the shepherds for this morning. Go and find that reading. We have additional copies if you didn't leave with one of these awesome little books uh, for your use throughout the Advent season. Uh, but he reflects on the shepherds as well today. But the message to the shepherds first is one of be not afraid for I bring you good news of great joy. And so there's this tension inherently in what we'll talk about today between fear and joy. And I live into that as we prepare to share God's word today. There's plenty to be afraid of in the news as we watch it, right? Think about what it might mean to hear air raid sirens in the Middle East to know that an attack is imminent. Think about it, 
what it meant to our brothers and sisters in places like Tennessee or Alabama to hear the tornado warning sirens go off, knowing that there has been loss of life to tornadoes this weekend in Tennessee. What it might mean to be a student at UNLV this last week to receive the notification on your phone that the campus was on lockdown because an active shooter had taken the lives of three individuals on your campus. There are things, moments, sounds that jar us into fear. And the Gospel of Luke starts with that idea. When that angel shows up and says, Hello! The first response is fear. But great joy comes as a partnership with that. And so my week has also been filled with that kind of joy. Joy and celebrations in our communities, connecting with others, participating and celebrating different manifestations of the creative arts in our lives. But more than that, to see new life and new joy just as we wait with the Christ child. They normally attend the first service, uh, but Luis and Lindsay uh, Polly de Lopez welcomed their son Stryker uh, into the world this week, and so we celebrate with them uh, on the birth of their new child. We live into that tension today, friends, and so we listen for it. Fear, good news of great joy. Let's pray. Holy One, we honor you and thank you for this time, a chance to be together and to be your family of faith gathered in this place we open our hearts and our lives and our stories to you, knowing that they are imperfect in all their manifestations, and yet you love us anyway. So meet us in this time that we might know hope and possibility, that we might know boldness and a call to build your kingdom. May your spirit move among us, up and down the aisle and across each row, open hearts, open lives to a conviction about faith in you, to a conviction about what might be more in the living of our lives together to the hope and the possibility that you would be a God who reigns in peace with us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been our pattern in this Advent series to start and end with the same question and invite you to think about how things change over the course of the sermon. My question for this third Sunday in Advent for us is, who's on your Christmas list? Now this isn't just who do you still need to shop for, and if you're me, that's everybody. And this is not if you're like a friend of mine who regularly tells people that upset him that you're on my list now, not that list. Who's on your Christmas list? Who are the people that you are remembering, that you are celebrating? How has your Christmas list changed from a year ago? Are there names that you've added because you've had a new wedding in your family, a new birth? Or maybe there are, are names that you're remembering but not buying for because you've lost someone in this last year or you've experienced a divorce or significant change. Who is on your Christmas list? In the spirit of making lists and checking them twice, I want to talk about Saint Nick and Santa Claus this morning. This last week was the feast of Saint Nicholas. Saint Nicholas celebrates a true saint from the Christian tradition. He lived from 270 to 343. I don't think any of you were alive back then, so I'll fill you in on some of the stories. He's noted for his many miracles, but especially those directed at the needs of the poor that surrounded him. He was from a community called Myra, which then was Greek. He's considered a Greek saint, um, but uh, is now in modern-day Turkey. It's always fascinating to me the number of saints that come out of now what is now a predominantly Muslim part of our world. But uh, uh, St. Nicholas uh, lived at a time when the church was coming into its own, embracing its own identity and its faith journey and walk. He may have been at the Council of Nicaea, where the church was cementing some of its theological ideas about how God lived, worked, 
and moved and what we could affirm about scripture and indeed which scriptures we would include in the fullness of our Bible. One of the legends of St. Nick, and some of you are going to need to update your little, uh, you know, uh, Santa Christmas scenes, is St. Nick famously punched a heretic in the face over a debate about the divinity, the divinity of Christ. So, you know, take that for what it's worth in your Santa Claus story. He was generous, sometimes to a fault, but always to the poor. One of the most famous stories about St. Nick's work that informs our understanding of how Santa Claus worked is that in a family where there were three daughters who were born to very poor parents who knew and rightly feared that their daughters would never marry because they did not have a dowry to offer, Nick dropped a bag of coins down the chimney one winter night that they might have dowries to offer so that their daughters might be blessed. He's often depicted and, and regularly would give fruit to the poor, not only to meet their need of hunger, but at a time when they would be, you know, maybe in the midst of their hunger, have a vitamin C deficiency. He would often give oranges. I know that for so many years growing up, Santa would leave in the toe of my stocking a fresh orange. It's a time when citrus is less in season and the need for vitamin C is all the more important. So many of these things emerge from our sense of this saint who serves as the saint for those looking for answered prayers. Over the millennia, over the last 1800 years since Nicholas walked our earth and we've developed this beautiful sense of Santa Claus work in our midst that from the North Pole would come one who not just loves the children of one village, but the children of all villages. We have now created this sense of what Santa Claus means to you and me. And some of that was codified in our country in 1934 by Haven Gillespie and Fred Coots. They were the writers and lyricists of a little song called Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Now, you're probably picturing your favorite version Maybe it's Perry Como, Elvis, Sinatra, all of these, or Michael Buble, all of these great, I am myself a, a boss fan. Bruce Springsteen, Santa Claus is coming to town, oh yeah, right? That's my definitive version. In the 1930s, that song got released on a comedy radio show with a guy by the name of Eddie Cantor. They took their song to Eddie Cantor because nobody else wanted to buy it. So they said, would you just sing this on the radio for us? It actually starts, not unlike the second verse of uh, uh, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear that we don't often sing, there's a whole little introductory verse about going to Santa's workshop and visiting Santa there. And it is then, out of that experience, Santa says, oh, you better watch out, you better not cry. So this teaching that happens from these guys emerges. It became such a cultural phenomenon in the 1930s after it was on his radio show. There was such a high demand uh, for sheet music for it that it was, it was immediately pressed to records and available, and there have been recordings in every decade since. Santa Claus is coming to town. What is, for some kids, including big kids, an absolutely terrifying song. Why? Because Santa Claus is a list maker. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. This is a moral conditioning, a worry about whether or not you're going to be on the good list or the bad list. Have you been naughty or have you been nice? It was always a big debate in young Andy's head as to just the kinds of things that Santa Claus kept track of. 
Was it the big bads, the big means? Was it times when I was unkind or cruel to my siblings or someone in my school? Or could it even be the little things? The things that even go unnoticed by me. That time when I put things that could and should be recycled into the trash bin instead. Or I sped a little too much trying to get my son to school. What kind of things does Santa watch for? This list maker of ours. But more than that, not only does he track morality in naughty and nice, this is a Santa who's keenly aware of what you do in private and in public. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. That's a terrifying thought. (laughs) You mean to tell me that someone at the North Pole watches me while I sleep and knows when I'm not? That still keeps me up a little bit if I'm being fair. But it reflects on an idea of a God who cares deeply about our morality and the choices that we make. To know that how we live our lives is observed not just when we're in public but in private. And sometimes some of the most painful experiences that people can have in this social media obsessed generation is when your private is made public. And on the last bit, this sense of he knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Oh, Santa Claus, how I wish that we could. How I wish that we could be good for goodness sake. Ultimately, I think the problem with the song and my practice and experience of Santa Claus for all these many years is that it ultimately makes me feel like the giving of Mr. Claus becomes conditional. That the good I'm doing is not for goodness sake, but because I want to be on that good list. Oh, that I could be good just for the sake of doing what is right and good to myself and to my neighbor. If I could do that for just one day, I would be healthier. I would be happier. But oftentimes I do not do good for goodness sake. And I rarely do bad for badness sake. Often I do what is wrong out of a place of ignorance or just selfishness or pride. It's the tension we live into. And so St. Nick has this vision for us that maybe, just maybe, our goodness might be something that is offered not when it is about legend and story, not because somebody would remember it as a miracle that we'd done and and somehow codify our behavior and call us Saint Andy or Saint anyone else, but that we would do it because it is the right thing to do, not because we are recognized for it, but because ultimately it makes the world better because that's the hope at Christmas Jesus comes because things are upside down and Jesus is an upside down maker we don't light the Christ candle because we are perfectly ready for Christ and ultimately Jesus is sent to the world not because the world is perfect and ready John 3 16 says for God so loved the world that he gave his only son whoever believes in him will not perish but no redemption and eternal life God loves a broken world into being more. That love of God made manifest in the Gospel of John and in the story of Jesus at Christmas is not because we have done the right thing for the right reasons, but because we have screwed up. And God's redemptive act is about making things right and better. And oftentimes it requires a turning upside down. The good news of the gospel story is that our redemption required messiness. 
We worry about broken ornaments. It's a joke amongst our staff that with the tiles that are under your feet, how many Christmas are not going to make it to the tree at the Advent celebration? I think we were down maybe four this year. A slip of the hand, a careless act, something that was sitting on a lap when you stood up and you weren't paying attention, and then they poof. We've lost some important ornaments in our family's history, things that we thought were sacred to us. I have a little drawer, or at least I didn't see me. I don't know where they all are now, actually. I'm sure Camille has a list somewhere where they are. <laughs> of family ornaments to be repaired at some day when we all sit down and do that good work. But redemption requires messiness. It requires a God willing to come into the mess of the human story and be present to us. That the love of God made manifest in the Gospels is of a Jesus who comes and dwells with us. I will make my tent with them. I will be incarnate with them. God could not resist the opportunity to get God's hands dirty and messy with the human experience. That which was holy and sacred becomes profane and earthy in the Christmas story. All of the glory of God that we'll hear about in a moment's time takes on the dirtiness of birth, mangers, and life. The incarnation story is about a babe who is found where least expected. The Lutheran church in Bethlehem is trying to capture exactly that in their nativity scene this year. It's the members of the creche, the holy family, and, and shepherds, and their sheep, and donkeys, and camels surrounding a actually much larger infant. And this is Christ in the rubble. This is rubble gathered from a bombing. And that's where Jesus is laid down. It's a reminder that in that part of the world where things have been violent and rocky, still Jesus comes into the messiness of the human experience to take that which is broken and that which stands on the outside of relationship with God and to make it whole and holy that we might dwell with God and God might dwell with us that's the story of the shepherds those shepherds who are on the outside looking in the gospel of Luke will tell a story about such urgency such agency such excitement of the people gathered in the city of Bethlehem the city of David they come together to be counted and there's such energy and hope with all of these people it's almost like a family reunion where so many people have come together that there's not even space in the inn for a pregnant couple who came late who's not there shepherds dirty shepherds blue-collar shepherds working on christmas hanging out in the fields with somebody else's sheep Hear their story this morning from Luke chapter 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. For today in the town of David, in Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. Lord, this will be a sign to you. And I imagine them taking furious notes. Okay, what's the sign going to be? Some kind of glory, a gold palace, something. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. What? 
suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with that angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. The angels had left them and gone back to heaven. The shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened that the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This is a story that we revisit on Christmas Eve, but tonight, friends, I want to talk about this idea of being on the outside looking in, of being excluded, and yet God including you in favor. These shepherds who were living in the fields, who were living at their job, some of them probably indentured servants, watching sheep that were not their own, but owned by somebody with more wealth, status, and power than they will ever know in their lifetime, trying to pay off a debt they couldn't possibly cover. And an angel appears to them, and they are terrified. And that terror comes as a question of their worth. Why me? Why us? Why now? Why not visit someone who talks better? Why not visit someone with more money to give to the cause? Why not visit the king in the palace? Why not visit the priest in the temple? Why poor, ignorant, dirty shepherds who live in the fields? And out of that question of worth and their sense of never being fully included in the work of God, they are invited back into a deeper sense of who they are. They're included in a Jewish identity. You, yes, you, simple poor shepherds, not just the pastors in the church, not just the temple leaders, not those righteous folks who have longed for a Messiah. To you today comes one who is Messiah and Lord. This is good news for you. You are included. And beyond that, this is God's favor, and it rests upon you. Peace will be a part of your story. You are a part of those people that God loves, that God chooses, that God favors, and that God will grant peace to. And their question is, who me? Yes, you. And you are included in the Christmas story. There's a place for you in it, as upside down and as weird as it feels. You matter to God, and you should see yourself in this story, so go and see. Church, I've been praying about a question. Where could we offer the same in the next two weeks? Where can we as a church be the kind of place that says to the people who feel excluded from God's identity, from God's peace, from God's favor, from the Christmas story, and say, who me? Say, yes, you. There's a place for you. Your story matters to us and to God. And you are one upon whom God's favor rests. Why did Jesus come at Christmas? Because God so loved the world, the broken, messy world of which you are a part. When we can do that and do it well, then we will truly be here for good. So church, I ask you, who is on your Christmas list? Who's on your Christmas list? Let us pray.